Our sermon text today is Daniel chapter 4. So today we're studying Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to study the whole chapter, so uh, buckle up for a long reading, I suppose. This is God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dream that I saw, and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw... And behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, do not, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. 
Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. 
This is the word of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar was truly one of the great kings of the ancient world. You know, his reign lasted for over 40 years. He defeated Egypt and Assyria in battle. He added the lands of Syria and Phoenicia to his territory. He secured his borders on the north and the east. And yet his true legacy was not on the battlefield. For Nebuchadnezzar was more of a builder than a warrior. He enlarged the royal palace. He renovated the temples of Marduk and Nebo. He renovated at least 15 other temples besides these. He built a city wall so wide that a chariot could turn circles on its top. He built a public museum in his newly renovated palace in what is, as far as we know, the world's first public museum. He built, perhaps most impressively, he built a processional boulevard out of glazed brick so that every year a giant statue of of Ishtar could be brought into the city with great fanfare and pomp and celebration. So he built this boulevard with gorgeous, colorful brick and a giant gateway uh, made out of enormous basalt stones. And of course, he's believed to have built the so-called Hanging Gardens, one of the wonders of the ancient world. So Nebuchadnezzar has quite a resume as a uh, construction engineer. And even this day, right, people love to be associated with construction projects. Um, This guy, Bob DeCarolis, he used to be the athletic director at Oregon State, and he got nicknamed Bob the Builder because Uh, Under his uh, administration, so many athletic facilities were built and expanded on campus. And even the outgoing university president, he uh, established a campus in Bend, expanded the Marine Science Center in Newport, and uh, led a capital campaign that raised over a billion dollars for the university's projects. And uh, I graduated from OSU in 2007, and I could probably name at least a dozen buildings that have been built on campus since then. And all over the world, I can name extraordinary buildings that you could picture in your mind instantly and and have a sense of awe and wonder. The, The Guggenheim Museum, the Sydney Opera House, the Burj Khalifa, One World Trade Center, and and the list could go on. And so when you think about these construction projects, these enormous buildings, you think it, you know, it evokes a sense of awe and wonder. They become a source of pride for the local community, and they attract visitors from all over to see the wonderful things that humanity has built. And so it, I think we can understand why Nebuchadnezzar looks out uh, in, in the twilight of his reign at all that he's built, and he says, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, you're doing pretty all right. And he looks to the ancient world like a man who's able to do anything. So he provided prosperity for his kingdom, and he commands, or 
demands the absolute loyalty of millions of people. So Nebuchadnezzar proclaims his own glory. But he's going to learn the hard way that there's someone more glorious and more powerful even than he. And so what about you? What makes you think that you can be powerful? I don't see too many skyscraper engineers in this congregation, but we all have at least one thing that we look to above anything else. One thing that we think if we could just have that, if I could just have that, I would be strong. Things that you would pay any price to pursue. Something that would make you lie to your family, walk out on your job, sacrifice your good health, just to have it. These are things that are far more subtle than a hundred-story skyscraper. Far more subtle than a powerful king. It could be a sense of security. It could be the respect that other people pay to you. It could be a sense of belonging with other people. These, these are all things that the world will promise to you if you would do things the world's way. But God wants you to know that nothing that makes these promises to you can ultimately follow through on those promises. And we see it here with Nebuchadnezzar, for he thought he could rely on himself. He thought he could rely on his own glory. He thought... He thought his glory would endure. But God proved him wrong. God proved Nebuchadnezzar wrong. God showed him that Nebuchadnezzar's glory doesn't come from Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't come from building projects. But God did something even further. God showed that he could also show mercy to a man like Nebuchadnezzar. And so in Nebuchadnezzar's story, we see both God's judgment and God's grace, all to God's glory. And so we're going to look at this story in those two movements. First, that God puts even the greatest earthly power to shame. But second, that he is able to redeem even the worst offender, from these false allegiances. So Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he put great store in himself. He's here, presumably in his latter years. And he says in verse 4 that he was at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. Now even, even a powerful man like Nebuchadnezzar was a marked man. People would have always been gunning for him. You know, his own father, uh, Nabopolassar, had, had taken the reins of the empire in a coup. And so Nebuchadnezzar knew that he always had to be on his guard. 
for any threat could come and bring his prosperity to an end. But for right now, he's enjoying one of those rare halcyon days. Maybe he's doing a little lounging, a little sunbathing, enjoying a nice glass of wine. And whatever it looked like specifically, he's having a rare moment of relaxation. But the next threat doesn't come from where he was expecting. He, he dreams yet another dream that shakes him to the core. And he sees in his dream that all his accomplishments, all his glory can be undone. All his building works, all his ease, gone in an instant. And so once again, just like he did however many years before, he calls all his wise men together to tell him what to make of this dream. And already we look at this text and we say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, have you learned nothing? For twice now, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar be shown up by the true God. And twice we've seen him make some steps towards faith in the true God. For he saw and said in chapter 2 that Daniel's God has all knowledge and reveals mysteries. He's seen in chapter 3 that this God has the power to rescue people from certain death. But here he just returns to old form. He calls men like himself to seek the answers he's looking for. And even when Daniel does arrive on the scene, Nebuchadnezzar still insists on calling him after his own false god and calls Daniel the chief of the magicians. He's still resisting God. Despite all that he's seen, despite all that he's experienced, he's still resisting God. And this, this story, this vignette within the book of Daniel, as, as always, wants to be read in the context of the entire book of Daniel. So remember that in chapters 7 through 12, Daniel sees these apocalyptic visions of the cosmic battle that God is waging with his enemies. And that is God giving context to Daniel for the life experiences Daniel has in the first half of the book. So God is showing Daniel that the things that he've experienced have a place in this grand story, in this overarching narrative. So we need to understand this story in, in light of the big picture. And it's this, in the big picture, even now, even after all that he's seen and heard, Nebuchadnezzar, and his Neo-Babylonian empire have allied themselves with God's opponents. But Nebuchadnezzar is not unique. We see this opposition to God in every kind of earthly power. All earthly power tends to oppose God. The book of Daniel shows this to us as a template of God versus his enemies. It's it's an illustration of the fact we read in Psalm 2, the nations rage furiously together. 
The kings of the earth rise up and take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Worldly powers may vary in how strongly they oppose God. And in fact, Babylon is named in Scripture as the worst offender. But Babylon's not unique. For every nation sets itself up against God in its own way. And so what we learn here as we proceed through this text is that it doesn't matter how strong the empire you're up against is. If God is able to subdue even mighty Babylon, he will subdue any other power that the world has ever known. And to be sure, this vision from God does show to Nebuchadnezzar glory has been given to him. It's true. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire are strong. This is a vision from God, and it truly says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're like a strong, mighty tree, an extraordinary tree, so tall, so mighty, that it can be seen by the whole world. It provides abundant fruit, it, so much fruit that it feeds the whole world and provides shelter for bird and beast alike. So there's no question that Nebuchadnezzar has become one of the great kings. But Nebuchadnezzar is, Nebuchadnezzar's glory is easily taken away. For all it takes is a decree from God Most High to cut him down. Now God in his mercy doesn't destroy him completely, but he loses his reason. He comes down with what looks like a severe case of lycanthropy. He makes himself like a wild animal for a period of time. He eats grass, exposed to the elements. He doesn't take care of his hygiene. Why? Why does God do this to Nebuchadnezzar? God tells him, so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. For God is able to bring to heal even the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. But God has a merciful purpose in mind as well. We'll unpack this more later. But it's a twofold purpose to show God's power to bring to heal the mighty, and also God's power to show mercy to whom he will. Daniel's interpretation of the dream adds another purpose, that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom will be confirmed for him, from him, for him, excuse me, from the time that he knows that heaven rules. And Daniel even adds his own personal advice, that the king should practice righteousness and show mercy to the oppressed. But Nebuchadnezzar, he could do this the easy way. He could learn from the warning or he could learn from experience. And he picks the hard way. He still has to learn the lesson. He 
is not the source of his own glory. Nebuchadnezzar has been trusting in himself, but he has to learn that all that he has, all that he is, he owes to God. God is able to cut him down. And once cut down, God is able to set him back up again. And you'd think he'd remember the lessons from before. But he hasn't. He's back to his old tricks, trying to seek the answer by wise men that he has appointed, wise men that he holds sway over. But once again, these wise men are powerless to interpret the dream. So once again, Nebuchadnezzar's power fails him. Only Daniel can solve the riddle. And even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that Daniel's wisdom comes from God and not from men. If anybody has enough to learn from God's word and not from bitter experience, it's Nebuchadnezzar. But he learns his lesson the hard way. And so everything happens to him just as God says. Can can you picture it? One moment Nebuchadnezzar is looking out over this great city that he has built. And the next moment he's munching some delicious grass out in the field, lowing like an ox, powerless against God's decree. And the mighty tree has been cut down. I can't help but notice the similarity between this tree, Nebuchadnezzar, and another tree elsewhere in Scripture. For Jesus describes his kingdom as being like a mustard seed that grows into a large tree where birds can take refuge. Now, it's unlikely that Jesus' parable is deliberately referring back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But I still see this contrast. For the lesson of Jesus' parable is that his kingdom has apparently humble beginnings and yet grows into a surprisingly magnificent sight to behold. It turns out to be much greater than you would expect based on the beginnings. So different from Nebuchadnezzar's experience. For he appears to be tremendously impressive, but at a simple word, he's reduced to nothing at all. The difference is that God's kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. For God employs his own methods to achieve his purposes. And because God is the ultimate power in the world, he alone is able to bring success out of his plans. Look, worldly powers look impressive. Military parades, flyovers from fighter jets, campaign rallies, monuments, all designed to make any earthly power look great. But God's way is different. For it, Look at this. In Isaiah 9, we get a picture of a nation rejoicing in victory after a great battle. But who's at the head of this army? Who leads this army that's won this great battle? 
It says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's a strange picture. Have you ever seen a a toddler strap on a sword and shield and lead an army and rout his foes? Maybe in his imagination with a plastic sword and shield, but here we read that this is reality in God's kingdom. And, And the insanity doesn't stop there. For If we get out of the world and poetic license. Let's get into the world of historical fact. Jesus, the Savior of the world, he defeated the power of sin and death by suffering death himself. That's no more plausible than the picture that we get in Isaiah chapter 9. You know, if you want to, if you want to win a battle on the battlefield, you don't let the enemy shoot you in the head doesn't come recommended in any of the strategy textbooks that I've ever heard of. But that's how God did it. God did it this way so that you could know that only God can do it. For if you look with natural eyes, God's method looks preposterous, ridiculous. You'd never write a story this way. But when you see with spiritual sight, when the eyes of your hearts are enlightened by God's Holy Spirit, you see that only God can do it. And only God can follow through on his promises and rescue sinners like you and me from the death that we so richly deserve. And that's the wonderful thing, that God is able to deliver anybody and raise them up Even a notorious guy like Nebuchadnezzar. For just as nobody is so powerful that they can override God, nobody is so bad that they can override his purposes of mercy either. And so in Nebuchadnezzar's life, we have a picture both of God's judgment and of his grace. Nebuchadnezzar, he learned his lesson the hard way, but apparently he learns it. Apparently he had at least a little sense left in him. For at the end of God's appointed time, and and that's, I think, all that this seven times means, is God's appointed time, the fulfillment of God's appointed time. Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven. As this beast, he may not know much, but he knows to lift his eyes to heaven. And and God restores his reason to him. And so Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that God is in charge, and he is not. And when he does so, God restores his fortunes. Nebuchadnezzar is seated back on his throne again. The people in his entourage regain their respect for him. And in fact, his glory is made greater than it was before this episode even began. And he learns this, that God is able to humble the exalted and exalt the humble. 
even within the same person at different times, according to God's holy purposes. Of course, there's a lot of speculation as to whether Nebuchadnezzar had saving faith after this happened. It's tough to say for sure. There have been certainly enough false starts in his life by now. But he's certainly on the right track, isn't he? For in Daniel 2, he recognizes God as God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. At the end of chapter 3, he blesses the true God, credits him with delivering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and makes it illegal to speak of this God. But here his praise goes so much farther, for he finally acknowledges the power of the mighty God as he truly is. He recognizes that God's kingdom endures forever and that no one is able to oppose him. No one can put a limit on this God. But you know, it doesn't take a bout with insanity to become a beast like Nebuchadnezzar. All it takes is to refuse to trust God. That's why we read Psalm 73 earlier. For Asaph complains that the wicked prosper endlessly. But as he thinks this way, as he reflects on his own failure to trust God, he eventually concludes, when my soul was embittered, I was prudish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And so Asaph finishes his psalm saying, for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God his refuge that I may tell of all your works. So don't look down on Nebuchadnezzar for his experience. All of us are the same way when we don't trust God. So when you look to him in faith, trusting in him to fulfill his promises, God transforms you. God raises you up again. And so if you're seeking your own good apart from God's way, if you're seeking to do good for yourself without self-sacrificing love, you can turn to God to care for you. For Jesus poured out his own life out of his love for you. And he takes better care of you than you ever could. And he will deliver you safely into his kingdom. Or if you look around you, if you look at the world around you and you see these oppressive Nebuchadnezzars everywhere, don't be afraid. For God is able to nullify even his most powerful enemies. And he will do it. And he already did the crucial part. In his defeat, his victory over death and sin on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you reign. That everything is in your hand and that we can turn to you, for we know that our own power, our own strength, our own abilities fail us constantly. 
And everything that the world has to offer and promise to us fails us as well. But you never fail. And we know that you will raise us up to glory on the last day. And so, Father, we pray that you will teach us to put our confidence in you and not in ourselves or anything else in this world. Amen.